Somewhere in the bowels of the city that never sleeps. Kevin McCullough, radio host with Salem Media. Is a man also not sleeping. Syndicated radio talk show host Kevin McCullough. And that guy would like a word with you. Many of you know him from as Lodestradamus. Of course that Kevin show is going to be great. The only thing that could be greater, of course, would be that Donald show. But we don't have that, so we have that Kevin show. Featuring the music of Dick Tunney and the Dream in Color Orchestra. And tonight on That Kevin Show, former White House Press Secretary, and he who dances with stars, Sean Spicer. She's the Baroness and member of the House of Lords in the UK, Caroline Cox. She's America's favorite cover girl doctor, Laura Purdy, MD. And Katie Nicole and Big Daddy Weave in the spotlight. And now, from Times Square, where Barbie celebrated her birthday last night, and not with Ken, here's that Kevin! All right, friends, happy weekend to you. Glad to have you with us. We've got a big couple of hours straight ahead, and I want you to be here for every little bit of it. Uh, we've got a, a killer assignment desk weekend in store for you tonight and some really special guests. Uh, you just heard the lineup uh, there. Thank you, Dave. Uh, but we've got former White House press secretary. I cannot wait to talk with, um, with uh, Sean Spicer about some of the stuff. You know, the Coke in the White House mystery, for some reason, the Secret Service announced this week that they couldn't solve it. And I've noticed that over the last couple of weeks, you know, you've got you've got Corinne Jean-Pierre, you've got John Kirby, you've got all the spokespeople for the different branches of the executive branch that are being asked questions about uh, how did how did how did Coke get in the White House? I mean, let's let's say, for example, that maybe it wasn't Coke. Let's say it was anthrax. How how did you allow a dangerous poison powder to get into the private residence of the president himself. This is bothersome. And the Secret Service comes out, comes out yesterday and we don't know, folks. Now, first of all, I don't believe that they don't know. You can't convince me that this group which is the top stellar security group on planet Earth, charged with guarding the lives of the president, all of the first family, the most important members of the administration. Secret Service is there day in and day out. And they have to be on guard. They have to watch. They have to make sure that they know exactly what the threat to the president is at all times. How can a security service that is that good not be interested enough to find out who the culprit was that brought a poisonous white powder into the White House? Oh, the, the, the question, the answer is simple. <laughs> they do know. The White House is telling everyone to lie to us. That's the, that's the unsaid thing here. Of course they know. You got surveillance camera footage. You got visitors logs. 
You've got fingerprints on the dime bag. Come on. This is not that hard. You've got, you've got registration of when, when a certain member of the family came into the White House. And you have registration of when the family member left the White House on the visitor's log. Besides that, you've got the surveillance tape, time-coded. What time did this, this member of the first family enter in the White House? What time did they leave? Uh, when was the thing discovered shortly after their departure? This is, this is dumb. This is so easy. And that's the frustration. Because nobody believes when the Secret Service says yesterday, oh, well, we, we couldn't find a culprit. We couldn't find a suspect. We, we have no idea. Nobody believes that. If this had been, uh, by the way, a different administration, let's say one with uh, the last name of Trump or Bush or Reagan, and their kid had come in with a dime bag of Coke and left it somewhere, there would be screams from the highest hill. Investigate, investigate. Don't stop until you've found the culprit. And they would have been outed and they would have been uh, ridiculed. The press would have excoriated the president for allowing it to happen, et cetera, et cetera. So don't give us this. I mean, we're not morons. You think we are. But that's your mistake. We're not. So does anybody in America honestly believe that it wasn't someone in Joe Biden's inner circle and there's only one person in his inner circle that's a former addict or current addict that wrote in a book about his use of cocaine that we have a laptop full of evidence of him, of him still using cocaine, um, usually using cocaine to seduce uh, girls, maybe questionably underaged, maybe even relatives of doing the, the coke and having the sex and doing all this stuff. We, we, it's not like this is a foreign concept here. There's fingerprints on the bag. There's surveillance camera footage. There's visitors' logs. There's there's more than that. You've got you've got other cameras watching entrances and things that that totally could verify who was where in the White House at what time. And by the way, unlike what uh, Corinne Jean Pierre said last week, that this is a very busy part of the place that's on the tour and people come through. It's not. It's not. None of that's true. That was all a lie. The place where it was found is limited in the number of people who have access to it. And it's mostly the president, the first family, maybe the vice president. My colleague at Salem News Channel, Sebastian Gorka, said when he was in the Trump administration where he served uh, the president, that in all of his years there, he was invited to this location one time. That's someone who had access to be there. He was only invited to be there one time. So the Secret Service is either grossly negligent and incapable of keeping our chief executive safe, and they should all be fired and have new people hired as Secret Service, that would be terribly embarrassing, by the way, if you're lifelong Secret Service and you get swept up in this and you didn't have anything to do with it, but 
just because somebody at the White House told the people that told the Secret Service at the White House, you have to lie to the American people and say, we have no clue. We're completely clueless as to who the coke might belong to. I mean, I think that's already pro- – I mean, if you if you talk to – I've I've known a couple of Secret Service members. I've known a number of FBI agents. I've, I've known a few CIA dudes. They sit around and share war stories like our military does. Can you imagine – can you imagine being the guy that has to sit there with his buddies – and say, yeah, I was on the crew that got canned from the White House because we had to go out with this stupid story that we we couldn't find who brought the Coke into the White House. When Coke's never been in the White House before. And friends, those of you that are mistaking my uh, mockery of this as in some way just purely based on a vehemence towards the Biden administration or the president himself, you're mistaken. This, this is a crime against the people of the United States because it is the people's house. It's the parsonage that we give him while he serves his country these four years. It's our house. We pay for it to be well cared for. We, we want to make sure it's secure so that our chief executive, while he's uh, parsonaging there, is able to uh, serve the people without any distraction of needing to be bothered by what his living arrangement is it's a very good thing that we do but we're the ones who do it it's our house it's not the president's house it doesn't belong to the party that's in charge at the time it's the taxpayers and as we now know that this particular president has a son who has a bit of a problem in this arena It is vital that we not only protect the president, but that we protect the people's house. Sobering decisions get made there. The decision to send your son or daughter to war has been made in that house multiple times. Under grave circumstances, usually seeking God's input on the matter. It's a sober place. It should be a sobering situation. What do we have? Frat Boy Hunter. Oh, by the way, it's not just a dime bag. Secret Service did reveal that last year they found multiple bags of marijuana in the White House. Coming right back, Kevin McCullough. Stay with us. I knew it. Ah, uh, come on, Kev. What's a few classified documents between friends? I told you. I told you all the time. I knew it. I knew he had some, too. Here he is. That Kevin. Kevin McCullough. All right, ladies and gentlemen, very excited to have my next guest back with me, though he's been on my radio uh, product many, many times. This is his first time to join us here on the Salem News Channel, though he's been on some of the other shows. Uh, But he's someone who has a great appreciation for the difficulty of the rigors of the Beltway, given his long history with the Republican Party and the Trump administration. But he's also someone who's been a lot of uh, spent a lot of time in media, uh, television, even danced with some stars at one point in time. Ladies and gentlemen, put your hands together and welcome Sean Spicer. Hello, 
Sean. I'm well. Thanks for having me. It's good to have you. Um, so I got I to gotta cut straight to the chase here, man. I wrote a piece in Town Hall last week, and I don't, I don't, I don't know Corinne Jean-Pierre at all. So I, 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 That makes two of, of us. Just knowing her as a person, I don't have any feel for who she is in person. I don't like her stances on things and some of the things she's spoken out about. Uh, John Kirby, to me, seems to be a guy that is just kind of, you know, I don't know. There's something about him that I just it just gives me the icks. These two and several other uh, spokespeople for the administration for the last two weeks, I have felt immense uh, sadness for because they continue to have to come out and not answer questions when their job is to actually answer questions uh, because they don't want to talk about the things that that the press is finally asking about. I mean, you had James Rosen actually read the entire WhatsApp text uh, into the record, into the White House briefing one day, and you could just tell Corinne Jean-Pierre, I mean, she, she may she may be an ideologue, but I don't think that these people are sycophants. And I'm curious, as a former press secretary, how much do you think they're hurting right now? Well, there's there's two aspects to the question. How much is beyond their capability, meaning they've been told this is how you have to respond, and then how much are they creating it? Kirby, I don't think so much. He's very adept at saying, I'm not going to discuss this. I'm not right. going to He just packs up and leaves. That's what right. he does. But, but, but Jean-Pierre, so you take, for example, the cocaine at the White House. They misled the public on two separate times. One, they started off telling people it was in the West Wing lobby and there was a highly trafficked area. That's not true. It was in the West Executive Entrance, which is not a highly trafficked area. It's the entrance the vice president and others use. It's right outside the Situation Room. Then secondly, she said that the president and the first family weren't in the White House, and she chastised reporters by saying it was irresponsible journalism to say that the, you know, someone from the first family could be involved. I have my own take on this, but but the point is she created that situation. She said they weren't there. The pool report shows that they didn't leave till 624 on Friday night. Now, but my point is, is that she will say, I'm not addressing it from this podium or this or that when she had previously done it. So she digs herself into a hole. And then, so that part is painful to watch. I think Kirby is much more adept at just blanketly saying, I'm not going to discuss that or that's been addressed before and move on. Well, and they buy it more from him because he says it, I think, with a little bit more uh, adeptness and uh, authority. Well, I, I've noticed that, um, and, and I've, this has gone on in the back of my head, and I, I've known quite a few of you guys that have held that position. I knew you, I knew Sarah Sanders, I knew Kaylee McEnany, all on personal levels. I knew Tony Snow. I knew Ari Fleischer. I've known people that have been in this position for a long time. Uh, I know that there's a life beyond the White House. <laughs> and so you kind of have to wonder, do these people, when when they are in this, and again, I agree with you, Jean-Pierre comes out and says, well, the Secret Service is going to handle it. But let me tell you something you didn't ask for. The first family was gone all weekend. Like, right. there is a style to how she isn't going to comment that she then comments greatly on. Um, but it seems to me that, and I'm wondering if you sense that there's a possibility that the, that the Biden, the, the, the bulwark around Biden is starting to weaken a bit because Sean, there are so many of these things. Now you have the FBI documents, you've got the WhatsApp 
uh, screenshot. You've got the cocaine that nobody can explain, and somebody's going to have to at some point in time. And there just continues to be this this drip. And of course, oversight over at Congress, Comer and those guys, they're all they're all sitting there going, "Wait, what? Uh, let's let's have a talk with some of those people. Come on over." I mean, what? Where do you sense? Going into an election cycle, imagine you're, you're trying to manage a campaign for re-election. Are some of these people going to – are the rats going to jump ship? Look, I, I think we've seen this in the last couple of cycles. Democrats will vote for whomever's on the ballot. You've got an 80-plus-year-old man that can – No, I'm talking about the staffers. Are, you, oh, will he yeah, look, they, to see is, exits by people? I, I mean, I, it's a good question. I think that, again, this is what I'm getting at, though, is that – the, they look at these people, John Fetterman, Joe Biden, Kamala Harris, as vessels to achieve their goals, a, a more progressive world. I mean, it's not like the thing that I find funny getting back, if I, I mean, this to fuse your question for a second to the last thing. The one question that I don't think anyone in the press briefing room ever asked Corinne Jean Pierre that I think is crucial is when was the last time you spoke to the president? Hmm. So, what, and what I mean by that is, I mean, that gets to your question. When I was press secretary, when Sarah was, I even know when Josh Ernest was, when I did the turnover, I would, you know, he had time with Obama. Um, and uh, and Ari, I know from talking to Ari and Dana and, and a bunch of the predecessors um, that I had, that, that I spoke to, I don't ever get the sense that these guys talk to Biden. And that gets to the point of what you're getting at, which is they're not there um, they're there for the cause, right? The, the cause of doing all of the checking all these boxes, and so it's not about, gosh, do we want to stay? To you know, Joe, what are Joe's chances? Or they don't really care. To them, this is a vessel, and it's moving. And uh, and so I think that's the bigger issue on the left is that to them, the people on the ballot don't matter. The people in the office don't matter. They're all vessels. Die and Diane Feinstein. I mean. You know, they all defended her when it was blatantly obvious that she's not there um, because they don't care about the person holding the office. They care about the vessel that gets them further down the road uh, to implement the agenda. We're speaking with Sean Spicer, who is a former press secretary for President Donald J. Trump, and uh, he's involved in a lot of entrepreneurial excitement right now. You need to visit it all at SeanSpicer.com, SeanSpicer.com. His uh, latest musings, his books, everything that you want to know about what he's doing, SeanSpicer.com, all one word. Sean, when we come back, we are already in the throes of the election cycle. Uh, it looks like um, some things have changed, and yet it looks like a lot hasn't. I'm just curious, uh, not as a former press secretary, but as a former uh, RNC staffer that you know had to get a presidential campaign uh, successfully across the plate, uh, where do we stand uh, right now with a lot of this? And uh, let, let me uh, just give you something to think about while we go to the break. If the election were held today— do we have strong enough voter integrity uh, changed since 2020 uh, to satisfy uh, an outcome? And uh, give me your thoughts on that. And how are the campaigns planning, strategizing around that uh, if they happen to be the one that uh, gets the uh, nod from the convention? I, I don't think it's going to be close. I don't know uh, why it would be. But yet, politics is weird. Something different could happen any day now. Kevin McCullough, come from New York. Stay here. Ready or not, he'll be right back. That Kevin. 
Back to that Kevin Show with Kevin McCullough. Back from Times Square. So glad to have you with us on this weekend edition of the Salem News Channel, Biz TV, 300 radio stations, That Kevin Show. We are thrilled to have uh, Sean Spicer with us. Sean, um, we're, we're in a strange cycle right now. Uh, the campaign's kind of officially begun. The first debate's next month. Um, what, what do you see? What do you like? So I, I believe there's two parts to this, as you know. There's the Republican nomination. I think this is Trump's to lose. Uh, if Trump doesn't get taken out in one of the first four states, Iowa, New Hampshire, Nevada, or South Carolina, it's over. Uh, and he wins. That's plain and simple. DeSantis, uh, Pence, and a couple others have gone all in in Iowa. Christie's gone all in in South Carolina, I mean, New Hampshire, and then obviously Haley and Scott are all in in South Carolina. The last cycle in 2016 that was competitive was a 29-day crunch between Iowa and Super Tuesday. It is now a 50-day crunch. Why does that matter? It's sort of like, think about running a distance and saying, um, you know, you have to run 50 yards in 10 seconds. And then you suddenly say you have to run the same 10 seconds, but now you have to go almost 100 yards. Each day that they're on the campaign trail costs money. And donors and activists aren't going to continue to go out there and give and support a candidate that doesn't look like they have path to victory. And so the bottom line is, in the primary, if Trump wins those first four early states, the race is over. You go into Super Tuesday on March 5th, and that's that. And that yeah. that is the race full lock, stop, and barrel. And the funny thing is, when I've talked to some of the campaign folks um, on these various other campaigns, they don't push back. Um, because they they get it that most anyone who's been around the game understands it takes money. So I'll see a poll. Somebody sent me a poll the other day from Wisconsin and said, oh, my God, look, DeSantis catching up. And I was like, who cares? <laughs> if you can't win, I mean, if that matters, look, if, if, if DeSantis beats Trump in Iowa, we got ourselves a race. Um, and, I mean, no one no one's going to beat him in New Hampshire. I don't think. But, but, but isn't but isn't Iowa at still almost 20 points right now as we Yeah, but it's a ground game. I mean, you look at what, you know, Cruz uh Cruz uh, beat him and Cruz beat him there uh, and and Rick Santorum won before. The point is is that Iowa is a very ground, you know, knocking on doors, voter to voter kind of place and it's small. So my point is that's that. Then in the general, let me just give you the 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 sort of my quick take on that, which is in the general election, this election is going to come down to eight states. There, that's it. Full stop. Yep. Um, you know, Wisconsin, um, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Arizona, Georgia. You tell me how eight states go. And I did a video on my YouTube channel, Sean. Uh, it's Sean M. Spicer, where I go through these different things, the debates, uh, the the contests, and I walk through these electoral votes. There's 97 electoral votes among these eight states. But then more importantly, tell me how a third party does, on the, especially with the Green Party. In 2016, Trump won Michigan by 10,700 votes. Uh, Jill Stein got over 50,000 votes in Michigan. If there was no viable Green Party candidate in 2020, uh, Cornell West says he's now running on the Green Party candidate line. If he can get a viable campaign going and takes 30, 40 thousand votes. You think about how close Arizona was, how close Georgia was, how close Pennsylvania was, right? In 2020, never mind 2016. That delta is a huge spoiler. So I will just tell you that if somebody said to me, who's going to win the general election? My answer would be, tell me how many votes 
um, Cornell West gets in those key eight states, and I'll tell you who the winner is. If he's That's running a viable campaign, he then Donald Trump becomes the president again. Easy. That's an interesting observation. And I think similarly in the primary, back to that for a second, when you've got a Nikki Haley and Tim Scott both in the race in South Carolina, I think that <laughs> bowls the aisle clear for uh, for Trump to to take, uh, even if it's a tight win, it, it because those two are going to cancel a lot of each other's votes in the state. Well, where they're I, most well I, so known. you're absolutely right. And here's the, the, the X factor that I have. I right now Haley is leading. So Haley's in like third place in South Carolina. It's Trump, DeSantis, Haley, um, then Scott. But I have a feeling that one or the other won't be in South Carolina. Meaning, one South Carolina or, or Tim Scott. Yeah, that's just my hunch because I think your your gut is right. There's just not enough room, enough oxygen in the to get both of them there. Yeah. And I think that what's going to happen is. If they're stalling out after Iowa, like if they get a fifth and a fifth or something, right? So fifth place in Iowa, fifth place in New Hampshire. The question you have to ask yourself is, as as like a, in Tim Scott's case, as a sitting senator, do you want to get fourth or fifth place in your home state? Sean Spicer, always enjoying seeing you. Thank you for being with us. At least somebody does. Thanks, Kevin. <laughs> Talk to you soon. There you go. Sean Spicer, former press secretary for Donald J. Ready or not, he'll be right back. guest is someone that came my way by recommendation from one Dr. John Eibner, the head of Christian Solidarity International. As you know, just a couple of weeks ago, we spoke with Ambassador Sam Brownback, former ambassador for the Trump administration, former senator, former governor uh, here in the United States, but someone who's entirely focused now on religious freedom and what it means, what it represents uh, around the world. Nagorno-Karabakh is that uh, sieged area within Azerbaijan that an, an entire Armenian population is now starving and suffering through uh, as the uh, Azerbaijanis are watching them uh, literally uh, die. Someone else who cares very much about this is the Baroness Caroline Cox joining us from the UK. Baroness, welcome. It's good to have you. It's a privilege, privilege. Thank you. Now, to just educate my people quickly, what is a baroness? Well, I always say I'm actually a nurse and a social scientist by intention, a baroness by astonishment. You become a baroness by being appointed to the House of Lords, which is the upper house of our UK Parliament. I wasn't into politics, first one I've ever met, but I used my role in the House of Lords to be a voice for people whose voices are not heard. And certainly that applies to the Armenians who are suffering at the hands of Azerbaijan in the historic Armenian homeland of Nagorno-Karabakh. We'll talk about that in a moment. Um, so the upper house, that would be kind of similar to our United States Senate. Absolutely, yes. The only All thing right. is the upper house is not elected. It is appointed for a whole variety of reasons. And I think I was appointed uh, by Margaret Thatcher 
and for being an academic freedom fighter. Well, that's, uh, look, um, there was no one that I respected more than Maggie Thatcher. Thank you so much for making that connection. Nagorno-Karabakh is something that we have spoken about on my platform frequently, but sadly, not a lot of American press are. What do we need to know about what's going on there? Well, it is really a potential genocide. It is very, very serious. And the international community is not responding as it should. Just to put it very briefly, uh, Nagorno-Karabakh is a little bit of ancient historic Armenia, and Stalin, in his divide and rule tactics, cut it off from Armenia and put it inside Azerbaijan, it's called an oblast. And so it's formally within the uh, perimeter of Azerbaijan, but it's inhabited by Armenians. The Armenians have been there for centuries. Armenia was the first nation to become Christian in 201, and there's some of the oldest churches in the world there going back many centuries. But Azerbaijan has begun a policy of trying to get rid of all the Armenians out of this historic land. There was a war in September 2020, in which Azerbaijan did actually kill a lot of Armenians and occupied quite a lot of what is Nagorno-Karabakh. But some of Nagorno-Karabakh remains with the Armenians, and uh, that is very, very vulnerable and very, I'm afraid, at risk of also being taken over by Azerbaijan. What is the global community doing about this injustice? Not enough. And that's why I'm grateful to have the opportunity of speaking here. I think Sam Brownback would agree with me. Because we have a, an international obligation to help people who are suffering potential genocide. Mm. And the reason why I say that uh, what is happening there is absolutely unacceptable and should be um, dealt with by the international community is Azerbaijan is committing war crimes, crimes against humanity. I'll just give one example that in the September 2020 war, uh, prisoners were taken on both sides. There was a ceasefire agreement, and both sides agreed to release the prisoners that they held. Armenia released all the prisoners from Azerbaijan. Azerbaijan, I'm sorry to say, is still keeping captive many Armenians, and that is utterly in violation of the ceasefire and in violation of all human rights. But it's getting away with complete impunity. The what other is... point I would make is, sorry, just very quickly, is the only road which connects Armenia to the little land of Nagorno-Karabakh is called the Lachin Corridor. And the Armenians in Nagorno-Karabakh rely on that for food, for medicines, for transfer of people, for medical treatment, etc. And Azerbaijan has been blocking that uh, for many, many weeks now. And that is another, I think, war crime. Sure. Well, what is the, uh, what is the reaction of the Armenian homeland to what's going on? Well, obviously, they are deeply, deeply disturbed. And it is part of historic Armenia and it's inhabited by Armenian people, and as I said, it has some of the most historic uh, churches and um, buildings and uh, sort of historic sites that you can have, not just in Armenia, but almost in the world. Is the and, Armenian uh, government formally petitioning nations to join it in its uh, effort to see this siege ended? That's a very good question. At the moment, it's a hard one to answer, because I think Armenia itself is under great pressure from the international community uh, maybe even to allow Azerbaijan to take control of this land. So this is a subject that's currently very much under discussion and cause for great concern. We do have Zoom meetings with our partners in Nagorno-Karabakh, and one of them is a real hero. Um, way back when Karabakh first became uh, sort of independent, we always, my organization, Humanitarian Aid Relief Trust or PART, ask local people, what's your priority? aid, and they said, we help for people with disabilities. 
There's no provision for people with disabilities. There was only a bombed out old building we could arrange, but the director of Arden Televosia is a real hero of the peace. He's turned that into an internationally respected center of excellence for people with disabilities. But they are desperate. They're mm. short of food, they're short of medical supplies, they're short of power, not just the rehabilitation center, but all the people. And it's a really serious situation that could uh, disintegrate almost into occupation by Azerbaijan. So if, if you were able to have uh, a seating with um, your prime minister and our president, what would you ask of the UK and the United States to do at this point in time? Well, I've already asked the British Parliament, because in the House of Lords you can speak in Parliament, and I've asked the British government if it will call Azerbaijan to account uh, for the release of those prisoners, but also call it to account for respecting the needs of the people living in Nagorno-Karabakh, the needs for access, for food, for medicine, for transfer, and that is a real priority. And to stop Azerbaijan getting away with impunity. Baroness Cox, thank you for sharing some time and helping explain this to us. I would like to have you back in a few weeks uh, for an update if you're uh, able to do that. And we, we want to stay on this story. I feel like we're, we're providing a service here by staying on top of something that no one else is. And it's so important because, as you mentioned, there are so many innocents that are caught in the crossfire. Thank you for your time right now. Well, thank you for what you're doing. It's very, very precious and priceless. Say thank you. Kevin McCullough coming back from Times Square. Don't go any, don't go anywhere. Ready or not, he'll be right back. That Kevin. Serving it up with a no-drink minimum. It's that Kevin show. Ladies and gentlemen, they are a powerful duo. He lost a brother, and she is the rising star. Mike Weaver of Big Daddy Weave and Katie Nicole. There's torn up pages in this book. Words that tell me I'm no good. Chapters that define me for so long. But the hands of grace and endless love Dusted off and picked me up Told my heart that hope is never gone is in this story 
friends, I don't know what you're going through. I have some friends going through some tough stuff right now. Be encouraged. God is in my story. The brand new number one from Katie Nicole and Big Daddy Wee. It's that Kevin show, and hour two is straight ahead. Hey, get the soundtrack. Search hashtag new music spotlight on Spotify or Apple Music. 